just seems like a couple of days ago, I was standing up here wondering, are they nice? In the words of Joshua, when he saw the angel of the Lord, are you for me or are you for my enemies? <laughs> and I could tell by the look in your eyes, is he boring? <laughs> Am I going to come back? I made a prediction and it looks like my prediction is accurate. I'm not a, I'm not a fortune teller. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a savant. But my wife and I have noticed that I do sometimes have the ability to read people. I've given my life over to working with people. And I just kind of thought, and I'm not saying I could have done this with 100% accuracy. Yet look around the room. Numbers talk. We vote with our feet. And it just doesn't surprise me, those of you who are here, the ones of you who are here. I'm not saying anything negative about those who aren't here. Okay, so if we're not saying anything bad about anybody who's not here. Had I even shared this with a, with a group of folks today, had I been a part of this church and been as busy as y'all been this weekend, I may not have been here tonight had I not been wearing a microphone and had a Bible. Okay, so it, I'm not saying anything bad about anybody, but I'm going to say something good about those of you who are here. It doesn't surprise me, you chose to make this a priority. Have you ever felt like not going to church? You've heard the joke, right? I mean, it's well used and should be repeated often, that joke about the guy who woke up and said, Mom, I don't want to go to church. The people there don't like me. It's boring. You know how it goes. And then it ends with, but son, you're the pastor. Right? Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> what a great... For our culture, uh, I know pastors who probably do live with their moms. But anyway, having, <laughs> having said all that, I've now offended everybody in the room. All right, so uh, what, how was Colin's last night? He went down in a blaze of glory. Okay, great. So uh, if you would take your Bibles, turn to Second Timothy, and that'll put you approximately where we need to be toward the end of the Bible. Uh, the second letter to Timothy written by Paul. Uh, Paul and Timothy had a very special relationship. But before we get into all of that, we got to go back and be reminded of what it is we're accomplishing in these four sessions, this Awaken Weekend. All of that to say, this was the thought that went in my head. Whoever shows up on Sunday night, how do I custom fit that with the demographic I assume will be there? And, and that's the, the, the person who decided ahead of time, no matter how tired I am, I'm going to go. Uh, the person who said... Uh, I, I'm in this for all four. I want to get the complete set. And I thought, what kind of person does that? Well, there's either your broken person who's saying, God, I don't care. I'm just going to sit under biblical teaching and hear the word because I need it right now. Or, or the leadership personality that says, I need to be fed. The teachers that say, it's just nice to be taught for a change. Uh, the worship folks who go, well, I got to be here because it looks really weird if I strum and leave. Okay, I don't know. But I'm, I'm thinking my way through all that, and I'm just going to assume that I'm talking to folks in this body who in one way or another have influence in the church. You are leaders. And if you're not, I'm going to argue you should be. Everybody in life, sooner or later, is called to impact another. And to take a stand and say, follow me as I follow Christ. 
Those of you who were born with natural leadership skills or tendencies, raise your hand because you probably won't mind raising your hand. You're like, that's right, look at me, that's me, I'm a leader. All of you who weren't born with those skills or tendencies, keep your hands down. See, there you go. (laughs) You're like, fine, that's good. I don't want to raise my hand. I don't want to draw attention myself. And I I refer uh, to you guys in a very nice way as worker bees. Where would leaders be if they didn't have folks who were willing to uh, set their their hand to the plow and do the work of ministry? And yet those of us who are leaders are called to be followers and those who are followers are called to be leaders. You've got to learn to function sometimes in each role. That's what tonight is geared toward as we set that fourth alarm. The first alarm we set, I told you about Megan. We're going to bring her back up into the story again with 30, 36. I heard a funny, 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 Fernie. I heard a Fernie comment this afternoon about the 36 alarms. And if, take me out to supper. I'll tell you about that story. But um, anyway, the, the, the first alarm we set was about the gospel. Every person, redeemed or lost, needs to hear the gospel regularly. There was this lady. I don't really know what she looks like. I saw a video about her life, funny name, Fanny Crosby. She wrote this hymn, I Love to Tell the Story. And there's one of the verses that really used to confuse me as a kid growing up in church. I love to tell the story to those who know it best or well. Sure, that's a synonym. We'll take take synonyms. Uh, I love to tell the story for those who know it best who uh, something about they really want to hear it and they're satisfied like the rest or something like that. It rhymes with, it rhymes with the best. But it, now all of that to say, I, I used to think, why would you tell somebody who already knows the gospel the gospel? I don't know if you know this, but I used to be very immature. Now I'm just immature. I used to be very immature. Now I've grown to understand that it is a refreshing reminder just to hear. Uh, <laughs> I was talking to a guy in our youth group I won't tell you who, because we got two spies over here who are in youth group. So one of, my, one of our youth group guys comes to me and he says, Brother Colin, I need to talk. And I said, well, let's go step into my office, which the church I attend doesn't give me an office, so we used a stairwell. We sat in my office, the stairwell, and we had a very spiritual conversation. And he said, I'm struggling with doubt. Raise your hand if you can relate with struggling with doubt. I said, what are you doubting? He said, what if the resurrection isn't real? Well, your mind's already going. Your minds, you guys who have biblical minds, you're already headed there, right? If the resurrection isn't real, we're of most men to be pitied. By the way, it's a very popular chapter this weekend of a very popular book. First Corinthians, what chapter? 15, that's right. And it comes after 1 through 5. Down later in that chapter, verse 15, uh, chapter 15, he says... Uh, if the resurrection isn't real, we are of most men to be pitied. But I didn't take him to that passage because I'm convinced the Holy Spirit did one of those. <clears throat> and I went over to the book of John where John the Baptist is doubting. And I've never used that passage before, but it was brilliant. Not because it was me, but because it was the Holy Spirit. It was brilliant. I told him, I said, you're in good company. Think about John the Baptist. Do you remember that guy, locusts and camel hair? He's kind of weird and funky. And what was his whole role in life? Wouldn't you love to have that assignment? I mean, I know pastor's wife of Northside Bible Church is like just below John the Baptist. But wouldn't you love to be like, so in heaven, you know, we're all walking around with our resumes. <laughs> I've got a resume. Yeah, I'm walking around with my little resume. 
And here's John the Baptist. Here's what I did. I was the forerunner of the Messiah. Are you kidding me? That's just cool, right? And where is he? He's in jail and he's going, scratching his head. Um, He sends messengers. Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus just scolds him and says, I can't believe you're a forerunner of me. And you don't even No, he doesn't do that. He says, go tell John. The sick are being healed. The lame are being made to walk. There is concrete evidence that I am truly the Messiah. Nobody's arguing. Well, we've got to be reminded of the gospel. And we said that there were three bases and home plate. I'm a sinner. Base one. What's base two? Can't what? Can't save myself. Who can and why? Who can? Why? He's a windshield wiper. I love that. Yeah, because he died, was buried, rose again the third day. According to the scriptures, it was all predicted. God didn't just go, let me kind of wing this as I'm, as I'm doing it. Let me just kind of throw this together. He said it would happen and it did. I love that. But then we said there's 18 inches between your heart and your head. There's 18 inches between heaven and hell. It's not enough that you know that the Son of God died in your place as your substitute. You also have to believe. You have to put your faith, which is one of those churchy words for trust. You've got to put your trust in him. Josh, have you put your trust in him? See, I already knew the answer before. And he's like, is this a trick question? Yes. Yes. We said alarm number two is to know and own your calling. You just Since we're, we're a little more informal here. Look around the room. Just go ahead. I'm going to give you freedom. We're just going to take a test drive. Look around the room. Just go ahead. Look around. See who's in here. If you're confident... And remember, confidence doesn't mean accurate, right? (laughs) I've been inaccurate and confident most of my life, okay? So, by way of testimony, okay. So I'm not saying are you accurate. If you're confident that you know God's specific call on your life, would you raise your hand just by way of testimony? Look around the room. These people are confident that they know that they're... Now, here's what's interesting. If they're confident of that, and there's someone you respect, and there's someone who bears fruit, and there's someone who walks with the Lord, and I'd love it even if they were just the same gender. And there's someone you look up to and you want to know what your personal calling is. Guess what you could do? You could ask him, tell me your story of how it is you know your calling. And would you pray along with me that God would help me discover my calling? Pastor Stan doesn't have to do everything spiritual in the church, right? Right? Okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah I knew y'all were with me. Y'all were it was just you thought it was one of those. What are those? What are those questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why'd you answer? It was a rhetorical question. You guys are fun. Then we said this morning, alarm number three, the custom fit alarm was to cease fire. Stop striving. Be still, my soul. Take times to retreat alone and to hear those waves. I love you. I love you. I love you. Okay, I love you. I can tell you, I want me to say this one last time. I love you. There it is. And that's what God continues to say to us. I don't know if any of you prayed this this afternoon, but since I discovered that really crazy story about the moon it's impacted my prayer life i've asked the lord would you just hide me in the moon and he and i know what that knows what that means right you know <laughs> we don't start there we have to build the story first and then but there are times where i go lord would you just hide me in the moon and that's our little code for i need shelter right now this afternoon 
after after all four. I don't know if y'all realize I love doing what God's led me to do, but about this time in the schedule, my body hits a brick wall. And my daughters, we, we went to Walgreens because they wanted to go to a mall, and we found Walgreens. So we, in Cookville, that's the mall, by the way. Walgreens is the mall. So uh, they went and, and looked. Well, I sat out in the car, and I just, I hid in the moon, and I asked God to recharge me, and I was amazed. Like, why am I, I shouldn't be impressed at this point, should I? Why is it when I pray and God answers in the way that I, and I'm not expecting it, and it's like, but Lord, I just need energy. And all of a sudden, whoo, I got energy. I don't know about you, but that's also the point where I go, and can I have a million dollars? Now, it hasn't worked yet, but I think the theory is sound. Okay, so I'm just going to keep trying it. Uh, you pray that along with me. If it happens, hey, a, a tithe of a million. Well, that's Old Testament. That's unbiblical. So I have to be sacrificial. So a dollar off a million. <laughs> you got that. You got that sacrificial. Okay, so that was uh, alarm number three tonight. Alarm number four. But before we get to alarm four, we interrupt this broadcast with a Holy Spirit interruption. Because as I was spending time in the moon while they were in Walgreens and I was getting re-energized, I sensed the Holy Spirit. He didn't say it in words. I'm not saying it was a special revelation. Uh, yeah, Lord. You know. But there was this question that popped in my head and I don't think it was for me. You've had an opportunity to brag on me for four sessions and there's this huge thing the congregation has no clue about. And I think it's time you share it. There's a verse that we quote as a family. It's Psalm 105. One. Am I saying that right? I always the numbers get messed up. Would you quote that for the congregation loud from where you're seated? Sing to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. One of the things we're commanded to do is to talk to each other about what God's done in our life. I'm going to hit the pause button on our life right now and rewind the tape back to January of 2017. So figure out what you were doing around January 2017. Actually, let's just go back to December 2016. You've, you've got to know my wife. Sweet, kind, gentle, merciful. Can you see it? Raise your hand if you can see that. Okay, good. Put your hands down. No, I'm kidding. All right, so anyway. Uh, she is an opposite attract. I am mean, snarky, sarcastic. Now I love to have fun too, right? So we, we go together pretty well, kind of like peanut butter and jelly. Well, in December, I, now I am a decisive leader. Again, not always accurate, but I'm decisive. That's the strength of, you know, this is the way we should go. And I love it because on our honeymoon, what we did this uh, whitewater rafting trip down the Nantahala because I didn't want any guides. You can go down without a guide. Just the two of us in a raft, maybe I got this, right? And she goes, are we going to be able to do this? Well, they give us a six-man raft. I've only ever been, I've only ever been rafting with, with six people in a raft because it's always been ministry-oriented. You know, we're all in a raft together. Within the first 30 yards, I have our six-man raft wedged between two rocks, and it folds in the middle and fills up with water. What a great start to our marriage relationship because that's the way it's looked. She knows to, to just kind of go, Dear Lord Jesus, you're my ultimate authority. When I say the words, oh, honey, I got this. That's when we're in trouble, right? Well, <clears throat> I'm a decisive leader. Uh, Julie just continues to love me through all of that that it is. And now Julie was raised. She's one of those middle kid personality. She fits that middle kid 
So she, and in the culture of her family, if you know her family, uh, which I look here because you were sweet mates with her sister. Is that, is that correct? You've got history in the family. So you know that in their family, they, 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 they say stuff like this. Here's the culture of the Mary, family I married. Cole and I was thinking about the possibility of praying about the opportunity of maybe if we could consider the option of doing one of four things. And I'm going to now explain those four things to you so that by the time you're done, you'll rip the flesh off your face and just make a decision so we can quit having this conversation. Can you tell I'm a little bitter? I am. I'm just working it out right now as, as we go. Now, very now, but but it's all in this kind, sweet, syrupy. I love it. I'm attracted to it. I married her. I love her. I do it all over again. I don't know if she'd do it all over again. Some questions I don't ask. December, she says to me, I'm, I'm on the road. I'm in go mode. I'm getting stuff done. I'm driving miles. I'm servicing clients. And she says to me, I've noticed a lump on Kaylin's throat. A month later, I'm on the road. We're going to go mode. Christmas is over. And she goes, I've noticed a lump on Kaylin's throat. Now, here's what she would normally say. And I think we should consider the possibility of maybe going to the doctor. And then here's what I would say. Okay, well, let's just keep our eye on it. Let's not rush to the doctor right away. Let's just keep our eye on it. We'll check in with it and see how it all goes. Here's what she said. I need to take our daughter to the doctor. But she didn't, like, not, not snarky, right? Even when I say it, it sounds, but you just put that in her filter. But she came very decisive, boom. And I, I think the Holy Spirit just took over because I heard myself in the third person say, okay, let's do it. I went, whoa, inside. What have, I, what have I done? Now we're committed. We go to the pediatrician. The pediatrician feels my daughter's throat and goes, we need an ultrasound. And we need it fast. Okay. She says, I'm going to hook you up with a local ear, nose, throat guy. Am I doing this right so far? So we go to the local ear, nose, throat guy. And he goes, um, how did you find this? And Julie says, well, she was sick last month. And I always feel my daughter's throat. I know what it feels like. And it didn't feel like what it should feel like. So then I felt it again in January. It still hadn't gone away. So I went to the pediatrician. He goes, I can't believe you found this. We need to get an ultrasound needle biopsy so that we can make sure we can get a biopsy of that in the center of the mass. And all of a sudden, we're looking at each other going, is this real? Yeah, it's real. So we go get the ultrasound. We go get the needle biopsy. Comes back and the local, this is Cookville now, the, 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 <laughs> the very small town, Mayberry, Cookville, and the, the local guy says, I've been doing this since 1974. I've only seen, this is my second, third, second, third. This is my third case that I've ever seen in 30-something years. If she were my granddaughter, she'd be going to Vanderbilt. I've got a guy I can put you in touch with at Vanderbilt. Now, here's the cool thing about God. We ended up not with the professor at Vanderbilt, but with the professor who teaches the professor's who then teach the students. Like we got the top endocrinologist. He writes, he writes the, the journal, med medical journal articles that are sitting in the waiting room that are dealing with the stuff that my daughter's going through. And he meets us, Dr. Russell. I'll never forget him. He'll never forget us, by the way. When you meet us in the room and it's all four of us, right? Because we do everything as a family, you know? And he just fell in love with my wife and daughters. He put up with my antics, you know, because I was in rare form. 
He was chasing us down as we were leaving because he didn't want us to leave yet in that first meeting. And he said, if it was my daughter, we, we, uh, it, it, all, it came back, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Because benign's not it. It came back carcinogenic, malignant. It came back malignant. And it's thyroid cancer. Well, all I heard was the word cancer. Now, we, we buried Aunt Christy just, just uh, 14 months before, two years before. So it's been two years. 2015, we buried Aunt Christy in December. And, and that was a type of cancer. So we're all hearing the word cancer and we're going, oh no. Now here's the crazy thing in the midst of all this story. When we, when we sent off for the needle biopsy, we had to wait a week to find out if it was malignant or not. When we found out it was malignant, my 14-year-old daughter, the one with the lump in her throat, laughs. Now remember, she's my daughter. Mentally, there's some maybe some issues there, right? But you'd agree it's not normal for someone to laugh at that kind of news. But praise God, I'd had enough men invest in my life that they you don't ever judge anybody for their response to big, bad, tragic news. But you do want to follow up with it later. So later in our room, and I've asked her permission to tell this story. She said, yes, if it will encourage the saints, tell whatever you need to tell. And I'm telling you, this is what encouraged me as a dad. And I'm not bragging on her because she's my daughter. I'm just, I love the fact as an older saint that we've got a younger generation that's starting to catch on. I walk into her room, I shut the door, I say, we need to talk about this a little bit. Why did you laugh? And she says, Daddy, what you don't know is that back in October, I prayed. David had Goliath, Joshua had a wall. I got nothing. I want to do something big for Jesus. I looked around my youth group room and I see a group of high school students who are not that they're empty or it's not that they're shallow. It's just that nobody's really running with passion after Christ. I want to run with passion after Christ. Cancer's big. We can do cancer. I love you. I love you. And when I grow up and I'm 13, I want to be just like you. And to the glory of God, I watched my daughter walk through what should have just been a surgery and then uh, nuclear uh, therapy, but it became two surgeries. And, and it took away the joy of singing because for a long time she couldn't sing. Now we're in the choir and you can pray for her because her voice is 80% back-ish, but there's every once in a while that she cracks on her, you know, and, and hey, that's just what God's done. And they, they told her, they said, hey, look, you can, you can put this special medicine on your scar and it'll help reduce it. And she's like, I don't want to get rid of my scar. Guys, this is my smile. I got two smiles now. This is my bragging on Jesus rights. We went to the doctor a couple of months ago. He said, I've been doing this long enough. She still has to come back every six months for five years or whatever that recipe is for aftercare. But I am comfortable in saying your daughter is 100% cancer free. Praise the Lord. It is neat for me to be able to stand and say, my God is faithful. There was a day before I realized what thyroid cancer was. There was a day before I had any hope that she would ever be cancer free.
that as a dad, I had to prep myself for a box and dirt and saying goodbye until heaven. And I wish I could stand here and tell you that it was all just rosy. But for a day, I drove through tears to Martin, Tennessee, which my GPS could barely find. And I had a six-hour drive there, followed by like an hour-long presentation, six-hour drive home. For 12 hours, I just kept saying out loud, she's got cancer. My daughter has cancer. She's got cancer. My world was falling apart. It was unraveling. Standing here today, it's easy to go, and my God is faithful. But with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no, 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 Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, I can say, but if not, my God gives grace. And if you could see into my day-to-day life, you would see a messed up, warped, sometimes angry, impatient, and unkind person. But as I struggle to pursue Christ's likeness, I find His grace to be sufficient. And it's just enough for today. It's the help I need when I need it. I want to encourage us. Share the way you see God at work in your life with others. Brag on God's handiwork. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. If I only had 10 minutes, <laughs> which I do, only have 10 minutes, I would share this verse with you. I think that it's going to end up just being the verse right now. I keep saying it, so I guess you say it long enough. Maybe your kids will listen. I don't care if my name is on my epitaph. On my, on my headstone. I don't care if my birth year or death year. I don't care if any, that information is irrelevant and nobody will care. There'll come a time when nobody just it won't care. My life is a vapor. It's here today. I can't snap with my left hand. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. What I want, and I just love it if it just said this. Now I know because, you know, they're my family. They're, they're still going to put all that stuff on there. But they had better put 2T22. 2 Timothy 2.2. You see, I'm drawn to these verses that I can teach you how to remember, but it's just a bunch of tunes. Don't mess with my 2 Timothy 2.2, right? You'll remember that forever. You're mentally scarred right now, but you got 2 Timothy 2.2. It's a bunch of twos with a Timothy in the middle. 2T2.2. What's what's the verse? 2 Timothy 2.2. You got it. Look at you. God's at work. All right, here we go. In verse 1, he says, you therefore my son. Now, he's not biologically a son, but remember, this is a discipleship relationship. Paul is spiritually a dad to Timothy. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Then he says, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I love this verse. We talk about discipleship a lot. So much so that when I set alarm number four and I talk about make disciple makers. Disciple, disciple makers. How did I word it? Alarm four. Yeah, make disciple makers. I don't, I, I, I just, I don't like the word disciple because we don't even understand what discipleship is half the time. We think it's a program. In, some, in the most shallow sense of the term right now, I'm discipling you. In the shallowest sense of the term. So do not think for a minute that if you sit under the teaching of a biblically educated person in mass, 
one on many, that discipleship is happening at a deep, meaningful level. It is not, in my humble but correct opinion. The times in my life when I've experienced the best discipleship is when I have a spiritual dad who is willing to invest one-on-one time with me. I recommend, and this isn't a Bible verse, but I recommend one meeting per week for 90 minutes. That's primo, because you're going to burn time up front and time in the, in the back of that meeting. You're going to burn up time just talking about the things of life, and that's okay but it's going to take 15, 20 minutes warm up, 15, 20 minutes cool down saying goodbye and it's over. And that middle section is what you're looking for. So if you can meet twice a week, I say an hour per meeting. Because of, you're always going to burn time up front. You're always going to burn time in the, in the, in the, in the, on the back side. So all of that to say, one meeting, 90 minutes a week. And, and it, you might do it for just short bursts if your schedule can't handle it. But where you're asking, men are asking men, how do I be a godly man? (laughs) Titus 2. Ladies are asking ladies, how do I be a godly woe man? It's not this thing back in the 90s. We had this kind of feel good idea that discipleship was just doing life together. Yo, side by side and shoulder to shoulder. Now that's good for fellowship. We can make an argument for biblical fellowship spurring one another on to love and good deeds, Hebrews chapter 10. But discipleship is somebody who's further down the road than you teaching you how to catch up. Now, I don't disciple my guys and say, drop and give me 20. Like it's not a domination thing. I shall dominate you. I'm your drill instructor and you shall learn 60 million verses a day. Okay? I don't lord it over them, but I do expect them to listen to my direction as I submit to older men and am discipled by them. Discipleship is not successful until you have spiritual grandchildren. That's the marker of success you're looking for. When I have guys ask me, they come and they say, Colin, will you you teach me this? Absolutely. We can have a meeting and we'll discuss whether or not I'll disciple you. We were at Poets Coffee just a month back. I'm with John Michael. I've already told my family this story. John Michael already knows I've told my family this story. John Michael's a young guy in our church. He thinks he's called into ministry. And he says, I need help learning how to pray and read God's word. I'm like, dude, I got you. Let's do Let's talk about it. So I show up with my little, see, you guys think because I'm a, woo, Jesus, right? Mr. Sanguine's alive. And that's true, but it's only a part of it. So when I show up at Poets and I got my cup of black coffee, no cream, no sugar, no silly business. We're just straight up black hot coffee. And I got my junior legal pad and my ink pen and I'm asking questions and I'm writing down the things you say. And he goes, this feels like a job interview. I said, you know why it feels like a job interview? You And it should be an interview for you to me. Because we're trying to figure out, is this dating discipleship relationship going to work? Because we've got to have chemistry because this is going to be tough. And the last time you want me in your life kicking your rear is when the most you need a rear kick. Thank you. You felt that before. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. From me, you felt that. And you have reciprocated on more than one occasion. All of that to say, in that discipleship, let me tell you, there is... There is nothing in my, I just, it's amazing to me to think that when I leave this planet, my work will continue. But it's not my work. It's Gary Green's work. It's Tim Regal's work. It's William Gustafson's work. 
Because those were the men who learned from somebody, who learned from somebody, who learned from somebody, who learned from Paul, who learned from Jesus. This is what concerns me. I love it when Christians say, hey, I'll show up and I'll listen. But when are you going to show up and train? When are you going to go find that younger brother or younger sister in the Lord and train them the things you know? Let me take this out of such a threatening context and give it to you in the world of guitar. Pastor Stan, in my opinion, can do things with a guitar that should be illegal in some states. I, I, don't, I don't know enough about guitar to even really know how talented he is. I've, just, I've listened to him alone in a room with a guitar with nobody. He doesn't know, even know I'm in there. And he's just got his eyes shut and he's doing some things that I'm going, I didn't know that was possible. That's cool. I know four chords. What does Pastor Stan need to know in order to disciple me in guitar? Five chords. That's all he's got to know. When I started in the world of guitar, I was told if I learn three chords, I can play 90% of Christian praise choruses. Is that true? Ish. Three-ish. Oh, it's just true? It's just true? There you go. And a capo. I need a capo. Okay? I don't even know what a capo is. I feel like I'm speaking in tongues right now. I'm kidding. Do you understand one doctrine, one teaching, one discipline? Is prayer your sweet spot? Is evangelism your sweet spot? Do you understand worship? Do you know that to worship in spirit and in truth is the goal? That it's not about style or preference or posture? But do you know that you can grow in worship posture? Because you guys have met me later in my life. You don't know that as a conservative worshiper, it's uncomfortable for me to raise my hands. How many of you can relate with it's uncomfortable for me to raise my hand? And I'll tell you what, you want to make sure I don't raise my hands? Say from the stage, raise your hands. Well, I ain't tell you, I ain't raising my hand, Jack. I'm just going to flat rebel. But God has taken me from one side to the other where I've recognized, oh, look, there, I'm not spiritually elite because I raised my hand. But there was one day I raised my hand and I went, wow, is there a muscle attached to my heart? Because in that uncomfort, I was willing to say, Lord, I'll be uncomfortable and I'll deal with all of those messages from my enemy that says, you're just trying to be a showboat. You're trying to get the attention for yourself. And I say, no, Lord, it's all about you. And this song says I lift my hands and I want to worship in integrity. So I guess I'll lift my hands. And then all of a sudden my posture impacted my attitude. Just the weirdest thing. I'm not, by the way, this wasn't supposed to be a thing about raising your hands or not raising your hands, and it's not connected to your spiritual maturity. I'm just saying that there was a person who had to challenge my thinking in the discipline of worship and say, have you ever tried it? Well, no, because it feels weird. Well, is it about you? No. Oh, I fell into that trap again. Are you actively involved in discipleship? And I, I have a, I, adults my age, I just want to pick on us for just a little bit. Do you realize that we're in the age where we should already be discipling people? We're, we're kind of the hope of the next generation. And, and the next time we want to pick on millennials, we might want to look in the bathroom mirror a little closer. Because I, I don't think our generation has done an adequate job of discipling and investing one-on-one -on -one as a whole. I'm not like sitting here pointing at people, right? 
And then that generation behind me, I want you to know you're old enough. And if you're in high school, you're old enough to be that. Right now, I'm challenging my daughters to look around because in your world, there is somebody who looks up to, respects you, and wants to be like you. They want what you've got. And you look in the mirror and you just see all the ugly and you go, how could anybody want this? And I don't have anything to offer. And next time, tell the accuser of the brethren to shut up and leave you alone. Because if you are redeemed, you have something that you can invest into somebody else. And if you say, well, I don't know what I'm doing, ask for help. I know a couple of people who know how to disciple disciple makers. I don't want disciples, guys. I want guys who will go out and get disciples. And I give a window to the guys I work with and I say, if you don't have somebody within this window, and it's different for each guy, I pray it through and I try to assess whether they're aggressive in their personality or not as aggressive in their personality. But we've got to figure out a time of when you're going to take the things that I'm teaching you and you're going to teach them because we all know when we start teaching stuff, that's when we really start learning. So I offered to buy him a cup of coffee. And for more money than I care to say, because it's one of those yuppie coffee shops that attracted him. But it was less than five bucks. For less than five bucks, I offered to purchase this guy and say, I will drive you harder than you want to be driven. If you'll ride with me, you'll look back and never regret it. And it's not because of anything I have. It's because of what Gary Green, Bill Gustafson, Tim Regal, and what they invested into my life. I'm just going to turn around and invest it into you. But I require this. You have got to pay it forward. And not with some slouch. Don't just get anybody. Interview them and make sure they're going to be the kind of person who teaches others also. Am I saved? Do I know my calling? Am I ceasing fire? And is it even on my radar that I am being discipled and making disciple makers? And then somewhere in there, the Holy Spirit seemed to want to interject making known His deeds among the people. As I go around and brag on what God can do in my life. That is how we awaken our soul to a greater comprehension of simple truth. Tonight, I'm asking you to make the decision to engage in the Great Commission. It's the last chapter of the book of Matthew. I don't know many Greek words. I know this one, ekbalo. Don't know why that one stuck, but it did. And it literally means to be thrown out. Like you would throw the balo, ekbalo out. I don't know. It's as you are going, as you go through your world, he says, and this is the funny part, missionaries all my life took this whole concept of the Great Commission and made it about evangelism. The weird thing is, Matthew didn't say, as you go, evangelize. He said, as you go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I commanded you. It's a discipleship passage. And we've already said, the first part of discipleship is evangelism. So evangelism is assumed but the context of the passage is, as you live life, make disciples. Paul says to Timothy, here's what I want you to do. Take the things that you've seen and heard in me and teach them to faithful men who will teach others also. Be about the business of making disciple makers. If you have been saved and redeemed for a decade, 
How many disciples do you think you should have already discipled? Two decades. Three decades. I've been saved now for three and a half decades. And if I told you the number of men I discipled in my life, and I'm making an intentional effort, I'm embarrassed at how low my number is. I know what God's called me to. And I don't think I'm measuring up. I'm not going to beat myself up over it. I'm going to use that as incentive to get out there and find some more guys to interview. 